Hey, this is Jad. Uh, before we start the episode, which will happen in a few seconds, I just want to give a quick peek behind the Radiolab curtain. So Radiolab is a team of about 20 people, and uh, that includes, you know, reporters, producers, fact checkers, Robert, me. Some of the stuff that we do on this podcast is a lighter lift. Not to say it's easy by any means, but some of it is contained you know, maybe it took a producer or two a few months to make, but most of the stuff that you hear on this feed took years to make, start to finish, literally years. It takes so much time to do this kind of work. And I think in the last year, we've done some of our best stuff. So I just want to review with you some of the work you heard on Radiolab in the past year. All right, let's start with Latif Nasser and Matt Kielty. It brought you this amazing story of a underdog hockey star. Pat Walters and Rachel Cusick reported an entire six-part series about intelligence called G. Robert teamed up with Becca Bressler and Bethel Hopte to explore how beauty affects evolution and, of course, the deep, deep mystery of eel sex. And then there was the right to be forgotten. Molly Webster and Soren Wheeler took a look at the ethics of erasing people's histories online. Tracy Hunt brought you the history of square dancing, the complicated backstory of why so many of us had to learn square dancing as a kid. We reported on birthright citizenship in Samoa, immigration in Switzerland, undemocratic elections in Gabon, and I got to tell the life story of Dolly Parton in a nine-part special series. Okay, so honestly, making all of this stuff is as time and labor intensive as making a movie. There are dozens of interviews that go into it. Every fact has to be checked. Every breath is thought through. All of our music is originally composed. That is how ambitious Radiolab is trying to be. So let's talk about cost for a minute. When you add it all up, and I'm talking the reporting hours, the fact-checking, the digging through the archives, the getting people on planes, the equipment, all of it, for some of these bigger episodes, the cost can be sometimes north of 100 grand for that one episode. It's crazy to say, but that is the truth. So here's the good news. Over the past year, more than 29,000 of you made a contribution to Radiolab, which is incredible. Thank you to all of you. You make our work possible. But mathematically, of, all, of the tens of millions of people who listen to Radiolab, 29,000 is less than 1%. Less than 1% of our audience who listen actually give. That's what I want to change. So if you like this show, if you want to protect this kind of journalism, we need to hear from you. We have 29,000 people right now who have stepped up. Let's see if we can grow that to 40,000, 60,000. Heck, if everybody listening right now actually pitched in $100, we would never have to ask you for money ever again. We could shut this whole thing down. So please make your year-end contribution in support of Radiolab today. We have big, big plans for 2020. We're going to bring you some amazing episodes, but we need your help to make them. Go to radiolab.org and click on Donate. If you're in the U.S., an even easier way to do that is to text us. Just text the word GIVE to the number 70101. That's the word GIVE to the number 70101. Takes just a minute, really. Radiolab is listener-supported. We are not-for-profit. That means we happen because you make it happen. So let's do this thing together. And thanks. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. 
Alright. <coughs> You're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yep. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. This is Radio Lab, and today we've got a story from our producer Matt Kilty. Okay. And reporter Heather Radke. All right. Uh, I, 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 I have no idea where we should start. I was wondering, like, it's like with the, the dawn of human civilization. <laughs> uh, maybe. Okay, so the story comes to us from Heather, who is a fantastic writer, who brought us a story that, if I were to boil it down, is about a horse, a lone man running through the desert, and what it fundamentally means to be a human being. And weirdly, butts. I didn't see this coming, but it's about butts. Just butts. Your butt. It's about your butt. You got to say it a few times. Butts. <laughs> okay, so let's back up. Mm-hmm. I am writing a book about the cultural history of the female butt. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I know. I thought I'd save that one for on tape. It started as an essay that I was just working on because I have a big butt and I grew up in you know, the suburbs of mid-Michigan that was, it was pretty white. And in high school, in the 90s, it was very much, like, not good to have a big butt. Like, I got made fun of, et cetera, et cetera. But then sometime in the mid-aughts, all of a sudden this body that had sort of been bringing me all the shame became attractive in sort of a mainstream way. And as Heather started picking that apart and looking in these things about race, appropriation, beauty, this essay about the butt, Ended up becoming a book about the butt. About, you know, what does the butt mean? Like, like what does it symbolize and why does it symbolize that? But before she could really dive into all those things, she realized she had, like, just a more fundamental question. Why do we even have a butt at all? Okay. So um, I started to research, just, like, search around for people who have tried to answer it before but because of what a butt is just even like anatomically it's not a simple question because as heather points out you have you know the butt the aesthetic object like the whole entire butt and there's two parts to the butt there's the butt that's the muscle and then there's the butt that's the fat Mm -hmm. so i talked to the fat butt people and there's a lot of them and although there's a lot of different theories about why we have fat butts there's no real consensus. No one knows why we have the fat. Mm-hmm. Well, do we have the fat because we sit a lot? But then why do men have so much less than women is kind of the question. Hmm. So then Heather started looking at the butt muscle. Butt muscle, yeah. Which led her to this guy. Oh, sorry, sorry, I just missed you for a second. Say that again. Daniel Lieberman. This evolutionary biologist at Harvard. You want to talk about the gluteus maximus, if I recall. I do. I do, I do. I so you called him up. You're sort of the preeminent. A while back for your book. Mm-hmm. Butt muscle scientist, as far as I can tell. <laughs> That's an interesting <laughs> distinction, but it's possibly true. Then we called him up. Not too long ago. Hello, everybody. Because what was the thing you'd learned from him? The butt maybe made us human. Well, gosh. Um, so, I mean, I've, I've been interested in the evolution of the human body and the evolution of human physical activity for a very long time now. Is it just because, like, you, you look at a human body and you're like, why? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I'm interested in how and why our bodies are the way they are and the way in which we evolved. Okay, so to get to the butt stuff with Lieberman, we have to go back. So many years ago... Around 1992. I was, um, I guess I must have been a postdoc or a grad student... At Harvard. ...doing research on, um, actually it was about pigs. The story, (laughs) 
The story starts with a pig on a treadmill. And, Sorry, just uh, out of curiosity, you were you were doing this just out of out of curiosity. I don't think anybody <laughs> just puts a pig on a treadmill out of curiosity. But it was it was an experiment to look at how different parts of the skeleton respond to the effects of of the loads caused by exercise. So Daniel said every day he would come into the lab where he had these pigs, mini pigs. Oh mini pigs on a treadmill? Yeah. Cute. He'd put one of them on a treadmill. Mini pigs are just the right size, let me tell you. And to keep the pig on the treadmill... You put a box. (laughs) And (laughs) you put a box and turn the treadmill on and, you know, the pig doesn't like having its butt hit the back. And also, the animals like it if you put a mirror in front of them. So Weird. um, So if there's a mirror in front of them, it thinks there's another pig there and... They're kind of much more happy running. Forever chasing towards their other pig. (laughs) Yeah. That's sad. um, It works. So this was Daniel's life, mini pigs, treadmills. Sounds like an exciting thing, but believe me, eventually it gets kind kind of dull. But then one day, it got exciting. A fellow named Dennis Bramble, who's a professor at the University of Utah, now retired. <clears throat> That's Bramble. Mm-hmm. He was on sabbatical at Harvard. Yeah, I was there for the whole year. To do his own research, coincidentally, right next door to Lieberman. And I heard the sound. and Turned to his co-researcher. And I said, what What the hell's that sound? Is somebody doing something there? And they said, yeah, and this uh, guy Dan Lieberman is running pigs over there. <laughs> I said, oh, I got, I've got to see this. Eventually, he goes next door to Lieberman's lab. Lieberman's in there. With yet another pig on a treadmill. Popped his head in, looked at the pig. And cocked his head to the side and said to me, you know, Dan, that pig can't hold its head still when it's running. It's funny. I, you know, spent hours watching pigs run on treadmills, but I never really thought about it. But, oh, there it goes. We looked up pigs running on YouTube. Oh, Wow. Oh, jump, jump, jump. So is his head still or not? It, their heads do kind of flop. So it's a floppy head. Right. Pigs on treadmills, their heads flop in this kind of ungainly manner in like every which way. So anyways, the two of them are staring at this mini pig on a treadmill. It's head bobbing up and down. And Bramble said, you know, Dan, I bet that pig's head is flopping all around because it doesn't have this thing. Called the nuchal ligament. Nuchal ligament? Yeah, the nuchal ligament, N-U-C-H-A-L. And I explained to him that, you know, it provides support for the head and neck. Okay, so the nuchal ligament, it's like a rubber band that attaches to the back of the animal's skull and then runs down its spine and keeps the head straight as it runs. Right. And then I went on to point out that all mammals that are specialized and have evolved as runners... Everything from cheetahs to leopards to antelopes... Big grazing animals like horses... Down to the teeniest, tiniest runners... Jackrabbits, among other things. Dogs, too. They've all got a nuchal ligament. All these animals that evolved to run got this ligament to keep their head from flopping around. And the animals that suck at running... They don't have one. Right. Pigs don't. Apes don't. Chimps. Gorillas. They, they have no nuchal ligament. Nothing. They don't really need one because running's not a big part of who they are. But then the weird thing is that humans, well... Humans have one. Humans have one of these too. We have this ligament. So then I explained to him just very briefly that... I At this point, Dennis said to Dan, a while back, I had this grad student yeah, so, so who wrote this paper about humans and running. Trying to figure out how breathing fits into locomotion, running and breathing. The paper basically argued that because of how we breathe and a bunch of other things, that, that running was actually a key part of human evolution, that it was like a really essential part to us becoming human. Yes. And that was exciting. Because it turns out Dan had read that paper, thought it was really interesting. But I remember having a discussion about it with a professor of mine who basically told me to to ignore the paper. It was, you know, silly idea that humans were really suck at running, that we're terrible, right? We're slow, we're inefficient, we're awkward. And the things that really made us, us... It was all about walking and tools and brains. Not running. There's no real evidence for it. 
Well, anyway, going back to the pig story. To them in the lab with the pig talking about nuclear ligaments. And Dan was the one who was like, oh, wait. One of the very cool things about this ligament is that it leaves a trace on the skull, a sharp ridge in the back of the skull. And so Dan thought, okay, well, maybe we could go to the fossil record, see when this ligament shows up, see if other things show up with it, almost in the same way that, like, when when we started walking, our bones started changing dramatically. Like, maybe... Like, maybe he could sort of see the same thing with running, or maybe this ligament's actually just, like, uh, the equivalent of, I don't know, wisdom teeth. Like, it, it, does, it, it, it doesn't really matter. Fortunately, we're surrounded by a, a wonderful museum. Right there at Harvard. Full of fossil casts of, of our ancestors. And, and also lots of butts. There are butts. We're not going to talk about the butts yet. But we'll come back. To we're coming back to the butts. For now, nuchal ligaments go searching, looking at... Skulls of... Our ancient ancestors. And they first look at a skull from a 7 million-year-old human ancestor. No nuchal ligament. Nothing. And then they keep looking at fossils that are... Like 6 million... 5 million. Nothing, nothing. But then... Sure enough, there it is. A little sharp ridge. They find a ridge in a skull... From around 2 million years ago. There's a nuchal ligament. The skull of our ancestor... Homo erectus. It doesn't have a snout. It has smaller teeth. It's, it's the first species that's really very much like you and me from the neck down. And this is sort of like a, a eureka moment. Like a Dan says, a eureka moment. Because from the neck up, essentially what we're talking about is the, is the brain. The thing that really sets us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom. And when Homo erectus first appears, you know, their brains are about half the size of the brains that we have today. What Dan and Dennis would realize, like, looking through the fossil record, all, doing all sorts of laboratory research, is that from the neck down, two million years ago, we got all these, these adaptations that we still have, adaptations that, that seem to be explicitly designed for running. So, for example, take the foot. Almost all animals that run have short toes. If you have long toes and you're running, you, your toes break. And sometime around two million years ago, our toes got shorter. Or also, like, four million years ago, our feet were flat. You can have a flat foot and walk very well. But once you have a flat foot, it's very hard to run. Two million years ago, our feet start to arch. That arch is a spring. And in fact, there are plenty of other springs. Like the Achilles tendon. Which is like a centimeter long in a chimpanzee or a gorilla. With Homo erectus, it becomes really long. A huge spring in your leg. Also, our hips become twisty, tall, narrow, that help us stay stable. Arms that are really useful for climbing. Shorter. Legs. Longer. The inner ear. The semicircular canals. Larger. More sensitive to pitching forces. So you can balance better. Our joints in our knees and our hips get bigger, which are supposed to be able to bear the load of running. And maybe the most important adaptation. The butt. Butts. So uh, butts are not only, you know, beautiful and they're helping me sit on this chair right now. But um, but the butt is, of course, the largest, the gluteus maximus, it's technical term, is the largest muscle in the human body. And um, when we've done electromyographic studies, so yes, um, I have been paid to put EMGs on on the rear ends of, 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 of people. Um, <laughs> and we do it very discreetly and very carefully and, uh-huh. and modestly. Um, but nonetheless, uh, when we do that, um, what we find is that the gluteus maximus fires twice in every stride, once, and most importantly, and most uh, to, to prevent the trunk from pitching forward. So every time you hit the ground when you're running, your upper body wants to fall forward. Huh. When I'm running, I'm in a perpetual state of, like, near falling. That's correct. Running is a controlled fall, um, very different from walking. And so your, your gluteus maximus fires just before your body's about to, your trunk is about to pitch forward and make you hit your nose on the ground. I mean, it helps pull your trunk backward. And the other time the gluteus maximus fires is when your leg is swinging forward, 
when you're in the air, and it helps decelerate the leg so that you bring your leg down onto the ground. So the gluteus maximus uh, plays a very important role when you're when you're running, and it turns out to barely be active when you're walking. And you know you don't need the fancy equipment in my lab to figure this out. You can just do this yourself at home. Just walk around the room and hold your butt, <laughs> and you know clench your kind of butt. And yeah. and when you're walking, your butt will just stay kind of normal, right? It'll stay kind of you know saggy. Won't won't really clench up very much. <laughs> but when you run, you'll you'll feel it clench up with every step. And uh, it turns out that very nicely, we can see when the gluteus maximus got big in human evolution because its upper portion, the portion that's really important for this function, uh, leaves a, a trace on the pelvis, on the, on the bone. And we can see that you know chimpanzees and early hominins uh, had a small chimp-like gluteus maximus. Tiny buns. Teeny buns. Yeah. Wimpy buns. Took them out of the oven too soon, keep them in the oven. <laughs> there you go. But as soon as Homo erectus comes along, you can see that it really got big. So they must have had big butts like us. Yeah, big buns. Hmm. But then, so like, well, why? Why did this happen? Yeah, like of now butts, nuchal ligament, uh, everything. Inner ear, yeah, all this tendon. Stuff. It's just like the whole human body changes all of a sudden. Why? Like, why did we start running? Well, there was climate change. So the ice age began starting, you know, or starting around 2.8 million years ago, there is climate started changing substantially and Africa started to, to dry out. And Dan says what happened is forests and jungles turned into... Grassland habitats and more open habitats. Which quickly filled up with large grass-eating mammals. Herbivores. Like kudu and antelope. And other large mammals. Saber-toothed tiger or something like that. That ate those mammals. But unlike other carnivores... Your lions, tigers, cheetahs. We don't have any natural weapons. We don't have claws and fangs. And the kinds of technologies that we think about for hunting uh, were not invented until very recently. So the bow and arrow was actually invented less than 100,000 years ago. And in fact, just putting a sharpened stone point on a stick, right? So a a, a, a spearhead. Yeah. That was actually invented less than 500,000 years ago. Really? We had nothing? We had, well, we had pointed wooden sticks, Uh. which probably weren't that sharp. We had maybe clubs, you know, we can throw rocks. Great. Um, And we don't have... Lots of fur to protect ourselves. We sound like the worst equipped animal (laughs) to deal with this climate change. But natural selection often comes up with really interesting solutions. Dan says, imagine you're back two million years ago. Where are we? Well, we might be in a woodland or we might be a savanna. You know, there's a variety of habitats. We'll stick with the savanna. You're out there with your family, friends, clan. We don't really know the group sizes, but probably, you know, 15 to 20 maybe is not an unreasonable guess. But who knows? You and your group are walking through the tall grasses of the savannah. You're hungry. And off in the distance, you see some wildebeest and you run after them. But the wildebeest run away faster than you can possibly run. And the wildebeest will run far away, right? And go hide. But that's okay. You're just going to keep chasing them. Tracking. Looking for any signs of their trail. And you're not chasing them at a sprint. You're kind of running along at a nice relaxed endurance pace, like 10-minute miles. And you do this for mile after mile after mile. But the trick is you find that animal before it's cooled down. Because, of course, the animal would have run away, and when it runs away, it gets hot. Like, when you're running, generates a lot of heat. And these animals aren't very good at dumping heat. And why can't it dump heat? Because uh, they can't sweat. Unlike us. Most animals are unable to sweat. So the way they lose heat is by panting. The thing about four-legged animals, though, is every stride they take when they're running... The guts slam into the diaphragm like a piston. And so when an animal starts galloping, 
it has to train each breath with each stride. And that prevents it from doing the short little shallow breaths, you know, that animals do when they pant. Huh. And so Dan says what you do is you try to keep this wildebeest sprinting. So you stay slow and steady, keep moving, just slowly chasing this thing. And slowly over time, you're making it get hotter and hotter and hotter until at a certain point after tons of miles could be 20, could be 30, you push this animal to the point of exhaustion. And at that point, the animal is basically collapsing, right? It's, it's, um, its defenses are gone, and they just find a, a rock and dispatch the animal uh, with a rock. And when you say dispatch, you mean like it? we beat its brains in? That w- might be what they might do, yeah. Huh. <laughs> This is so horrifying. I know, it's a terrible way to die, right? Yeah. But once we are able to do this, we, become, we, be, we were able to become hunters. Um, um, and, and, of course, hunting gives us access to incredible number of calories. Energy, and energy is, well, life is all about energy. You know, basically, you know, the, the equation of life is, you know, en- energy's in and baby's out, right? <laughs> So more, more, you know, that's a kudu. Life. Yeah, that's that's basically life, right? Yeah. A kudu is a lot of calories, which is a lot of babies. So if you can run down an animal like a kudu, um, you have access to an astonishing um, uh, energy supply. You also have access to important nutrients. It's not just meat; it's also uh, liver and brain and marrow. These are very rich, important, and rare resources that enabled our ancestors to overcome uh, the constraints of, uh, that so many animals face. And I think it's one of the reasons um, that uh, it's after the evolution of hunting begins that we really see big increases in brain size in human evolution. So brains basically doubled uh, after we started hunting. Hmm. And, and of course, to hunt, you can't really hunt without uh, running. And so, so running helped us become hunters, and hunting and gathering helped us become the smart, uh, intelligent, uh, cooperative creatures that we are today. Yeah, but I, but I got to say, like, the idea of, of humans running down animals over these, like, huge distances, like, it, it, just, it just seems... Well, and it kind of boggles the mind, right? Like, yeah. it seems impossible. Like, I think... I had heard this theory before. I think you had probably heard this theory before, at least in some part of my life. Like no, some you, runner, we, some runner friend had probably at some point been like, you know, we're like, I actually remember. <laughs> Do you remember when those toe things oh, came out? God. And I, I remember there was this there was this time when people would always be talking about how we were made to run and we were evolved to run, and there are groups of people who have historically hunted this way. But even so, there's something about thinking about modern humans, like people like me, who like sit on the couch and watch Netflix and eat ice cream, I just was like, ah, not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It just so I think there's a part of this that it's like so elegant, but it's also really counterintuitive. It just does not seem possible. So I had been, you know, preparing for this conversation with Lieberman and I had heard this theory and I had said to a few different people, you know, um, oh, yeah, this guy thinks that you can outrun a horse or something. And everyone's like, no, it's not possible. And he was like, well, I have people do it all the time. (laughs) Even I've done it. I've actually done it. You outrun a horse. Absolutely. There's a court. There's a race called man against horse. It's every year in Prescott, Arizona. And two years ago, I 
I ran the race and, and I ran, outran almost all the horses. And I'm just a middle-aged professor. I'm not particularly fast. It's kind of like he was saying, you can see this whole theory play out in the desert of Arizona. Right. And you and I talked about this. And we were like, okay. We're, we're going. Come back. It is off to the races. Radio Lab will continue in a moment. This is Lauren Fury from Western Springs, Illinois. Radio Lab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Radio Lab is supported by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, exercising, cleaning. What if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com, Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Radio Lab is supported by Babbel. Sometimes self-improvement can feel like a pretty overwhelming journey. So what if this year you just got a tiny bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with quick 10-minute lessons that have been handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. You can learn everything you need to have real-world conversations, café s'il vous plaît, from vocabulary words to culture and more. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a few months or a full year. Here is a special limited-time deal for Radiolab listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash radiolab. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash radiolab, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Radiolab. Rules and restrictions may apply. Jad, Radiolab, back to reporters Matt Keelty and Heather Radke, and a race. Which, this is one of my favorite parts of this whole story. So in 1983, a city councilman in Prescott comes into this bar in Whiskey Row, like super old West America. And he gets there, he sits down, and he has a beer. And down at the end of the bar, there's a couple of cowboys. The city councilman's just run a marathon. And at some point, the city council guy says, I just ran this crazy race. And one of the cowboys says, my horse could run that far easily. You're not that fast. My horse could do that in an afternoon, wouldn't even break a sweat. And then the city councilman's like, you know, I'm not sure he can. Actually, in fact, I bet I can outrun your horse. And for 30-plus years, they have been sort of seeing who's right. I put in new batteries last night. Yeah, what the... I 
I'm so confused. So a while back, you and I flew to Phoenix. We rented a car and drove up to... Prescott? Prescott. We went to Prescott. Don't say Prescott. No. <laughs> it's kind of just like high desert country. Cactuses and scrub and red rocks. Big blue sky. It's like super cinematic. It's like, this is the West. Ah! Man, horse sign, arrow to the right. And we were there to see this race. Nicely homemade, too. Yeah, it's just a piece of wood. It says man, horse, in red paint. Born out of this bed. And the race, it's a 50-mile race through the desert. Up this mountain, man against horse, winner take all. All right, okay. Um, so, I mean, we're essentially, what, just standing in, like, an open desert plain. Everything's super flat. There's a little like, bit of a valley. Kind of right out ahead of you is this big mountain that is the mountain that they're going to climb during the race. Shin-high, dry, scrub. scrub grass. We got there for day one. And we go to the check-in table. Hi, Heather, how are you? Let me just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we met up yeah, with Ron Barrett. By the way, I'm Matt. I don't Hi, think... Matt. Ron Barrett. Ron Barrett, yeah. nice to meet yeah, you. Yeah. He basically orchestrates this whole thing. Tall guy, bald, got a... Uh, white goatee. You meet him and you're like, now that's a good guy. Here we got some nostalgia. Oh, look at that. Oh, a bunch of clippings. He was propping up this big poster board. It's just a board that we, you know, over the years we've uh, taken pictures of back in 83, 85, the early years. There's a lot of old newspaper photos of horses. So that's the Mojo Man, Scott Mojoleski. Runners. A shirtless runner. He was uh, Mojo M.O. And he was the first guy to be with no shirt on Runner's World magazine. Allegedly. But... When we were talking to Ron... Uh, he won it back in 94. It turns out Daniel's theory is kind of not quite holding up out here. He won the human He won portion. the, yeah. Because the headline yeah. reads, horses right. again proved to but be faster He won the run at that time. Some humans can beat some horses. Did he ever, did he ever end up beating a horse? No, he never did. But no human ever in this race has outrun the fastest horse. This guy here, he's been the... One to come the closest. So in the 36 years that this race has been going, a horse has won every time. And to be honest, it sort of makes sense. <laughs> Once you see the horses. <laughs> what is that? Why do they do that? And then we got horses just kind of hanging out in these tiny makeshift enclosures. And, and easy, easy. it's not just like pony down at the fair or something. They're big. They're muscular. I can never stand that close behind a horse. (laughs) It's like evolution has made this animal to be like the best running beast on the planet. So we talked to some of the riders. The horses don't run by themselves. I'm Bruce. I'm Heather. Heather, how are you? There you go. You're just ravenous, aren't you? Good boy. And these people know what they're doing. They've been running endurance races with these horses for a really long time. I'm Matt, by the way. I'm Matt. Troy. Troy? Nice to meet you. So one of the guys we ended up talking to for a while was this guy, Troy. Barrel-chested, cowboy hat on. And Troy looked determined. I think of this ride... I don't even worry about who else shows up here to race on the horse race. I just want to beat the runner. Troy's actually been competing in this race, the Man Against Horse race, for the last 13 years. And he's beat a lot of humans. And so when I see these guys running, I'm like going, you guys are good, you know, but I'm going to beat you. Don't worry. (laughs) You know, yeah, Yeah, I still, it's like if I was playing basketball with a 12 year old, I still want to, I still want to dunk on him. Right. You know, (laughs) we haven't met any of the, the runners yet. Are they... Do they, like, congregate in some other spot? or them over there. Troy pointed a couple hundred yards over to the other side of this dried-out riverbed. The wash, that little wash right there, those will be all ultra runners. Cars. Oh, hey, 
they're little skinny people, all right? <laughs> so here's what we got for the reenactment of the origins of running and humanity. On one side of this wash, standing in for the ancient antelope of the Serengeti, <laughs> masses of muscle. Bred and trained to run. And then on the other side, Subarus. <laughs> small group of maybe eight people wearing microfiber, whatever. They just like have these like high tech clothes on and they're nibbling on like little vegan treats. Quietly reading books. Oh, Are you guys, you guys the runners? Yeah. We're uh, we're with the public radio Come station on. WNYC. Oh, uh, we do not on. like Come public on. radio. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Yeah, I know. All these Subarus out here, I figured a bunch of public radio haters. I was a little scared coming over. So for some of them, this is their first time racing a horse. How are you yeah. feeling about that? Excited. For a couple of others, they've actually tried before. Um, of course, I think I'm in, I'm about 10 years older, so I'll do it probably take a lot longer usually. But when we ask them, why why are you doing that? <laughs> why would you run 50 miles through the desert competing against a horse? Their answers. I feel like we're kind of comrades out there, just us against the course. We're not exactly encouraging for the human side. All you're worried about is doing it, and then it's time to find another race. It's us against the course. It's us against ourselves. We're all friends here. I mean, at this point, it pretty much seems like the horses have got it. Yeah, like a blowout. Yeah, they don't have a shot. But then we heard about this one guy. Nick. 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 Now this kid says he's coming, Nick Corey. We'd actually also heard about him from Ron. He says he wants to come tomorrow and beat the course record. (laughs) I kind of, you know, so that's why I'm kind of interested to know how fast this runner thinks he's going to run, right? Turns out Troy had caught wind of him. But I don't really know. Maybe even sound a little nervous. But there was no sign of him yet. At this point, it's almost, it's like sun, sunset. We need to eat lasagna. It's yeah, getting cold. <laughs> and so we head out to our hotel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see you bright and early. <laughs> Thinking, like, we're doomed. It just doesn't seem like there's any chance. Um, only other than maybe this guy, Nick. Day two. Wake up super early. <sighs> oh, the sun's coming up. Oops, sorry. The race starts at 6.30 in the morning. Chapter 6, race day, race day, race day. The horse people are all getting their horses ready. They're saddling up their horses, putting on these fancy horseshoes. They're feeding the horses. And back across the divide, the runners are sort of like... You're you're ready to go. So did they... Anxiously moving about, stretching. So, but we are immediately looking for Nick. I'm like, where is he? Uh, one of the runners was like, Right there, that guy. In that red? Nick's over there. Yeah, he's the one to talk to. And pointed at this little hatchback. And so I went over there with my microphone and my little headphones, and he All right. sort of like popped open the hatchback. Hi. Good morning. What, what's your name? Nick Curry. Nick. We've been hearing about you. So I hear. <laughs> Easy young guy, early 30s. A little bit bleary-eyed. You, you just get up? Uh, kind of. I slept out here last night, so this is this is my place to get ready. He slept in the back of his Honda Fit in a sleeping bag. It's easy to just wake up and be here and not have to worry about driving. And right away we were like, so are you, are you going for a course record? Uh, I'd say it's a possibility. Like, I don't like to get ahead of myself. Um, I know. What so he sort of hedged a little bit, right um, but we didn't actually have that much time to talk to him because the race was about to start. We gotta let you go, but yeah, thanks for talking. To us. Yeah, thanks, Nick. 
And so about 10 minutes later, 50 milers, runners check in over here. Ron starts calling people together. 50 mile horses. Horses start arriving. Hey, everybody respect everybody. Everybody take their time going through this wash. I don't want no accidents on the other side of that hill. I had asked Ron if I could run with everybody at the beginning, and he was like, sure. You guys all have a good day, huh? It's probably about 20 runners standing there, about a dozen horses behind us. And then right about 6.30, Ron shouts. All right, man, get horse race. Start right now. Here we go. Go. So all the runners get down into this wash first, come up into this barren desert, and pretty quick come the horses. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Nick was up ahead of me. The horses take off in a cloud of dust, and you kind of cough it up a bit, but then settle in. Meanwhile, Troy, as soon as Ron says go, I'm thinking haul ass. Troy is, like, galloping out there. He's, like, 100 yards ahead of anybody. As quickly as we could. You can see dust coming up behind his horse. How was your horse feeling out of the gate? Oh, he was good. I, on the other hand. You're going the whole race with that thing? Oh, God, no. No, I'm going like a quarter mile and coming back. <laughs> good luck, y'all. <laughs> it was kind of crazy running out there with them and how, like, everything was going exactly like Dan's scenario on the Serengeti with the antelope. Or in this case, the horse, like, taking off, the human eating dust for the moment. But like Nick, when we talked to him about this, he said as he watches the horses speed off into the distance. The first thing I think is, I will see you later. It's just like, don't worry about the horses hauling ass. Focus on the race. Slow and steady. Am I running the right pace? Am I eating at the right time? Slow down. If you need to, let your body adjust, find your rhythm. Whatever I need to do to keep going steady. Meanwhile, Troy is hauling ass through the desert. Somewhere between 14 miles per hour and 18 miles per hour. Now, we should point out uh, that there are a couple things about this race that are not like the ancient hunt. For one, over these these 50 miles, the horses have to stop three different times at these things called vet checks. So it's a requirement of any kind of official endurance ride, that when the horse gets to a certain point, the horses stop and a vet checks them. They just want to make sure the horse is okay before they let it keep going with the race. Which is good because what that means is that the horses don't sprint themselves to death like they would on the savanna. But it also eats up an hour and 15 minutes where the horse is stopped and the human is still running, which would be like, okay, great. The humans like Nick have this sort of unfair advantage to catch up. But it actually puts the human at a disadvantage in this race because in the end, when Ron calculates the final scores for the humans and the horses, he subtracts the horse hold times from the human racer scores. So the human has to beat the time the horse would have run if it hadn't stopped. But I felt sluggish probably the first 10 miles or so. And so, you know, I'm 
kind of second guessing myself. Like, you know, is this going to go away or is this going to blow up? And then I'm going to have to drop from the race, you know, halfway through or something. But keeps chugging along. Dragging myself and using And then Troy, still hauling ass at mile 16, trots into vet check one. And we actually got into the vet check exactly when I had planned to get in, which was right around 8.15, 8.30 in the morning. So he hopped off his horse, took a saddle off, taking the heat load off in the saddle pad. Got his horse some water. The vet came over when pretty much out of nowhere. Oh, shit. Nick came running through. I could see horses that are being you know, examined by the vets. Uh, I didn't see a whole lot more than that because I was in and out of it really quick. He looked good, too. I'm finally warming up, trying to more or less push it. I hadn't seen a guy in that race uh, anything close to as fast as he was. So Nick takes off and then... After a 20-minute hold, Troy comes flying out of the vet check. Marking the miles as they go by. 17, 18. Wondering when you're going to see the front runner. I'm feeling more loose, but I'm starting to feel fatigue setting in. I don't feel fresh anymore. But he says he tells himself, okay, you don't need to push yourself any faster. Just keep going steady. The horses are going to come catch me at some point. I've just got to keep steady and hold myself together so that I'm going to have more left later on. Meanwhile, Troy is hauling out of the vet check, stepping on the gas until he gets to the backside of Mingus Mountain. The big climb. And Nick. My legs are burning. Nick's only a few miles ahead, hitting the steep part of the climb. My hands are on my knees, kind of using them almost like hiking poles to push off every footstep. You know, climbing like it's a boulder. I was really, like, I expected a horse to pass me at any moment. And while all of this was going on, I can't see anything. We were lost on the mountain. I don't love that. What is, oh my God. <laughs> That's us almost driving off a cliff. Even now, my my hands are sweating and remembering it. But yeah, so we had gone to look for the first vet check. Uh, we had gotten totally turned around, and we were on this mountain that was just treacherous, like, awful. And I, I just remember thinking, like, how do you run up this thing? Or with a horse. I mean, both both of them. Yeah. But then so we finally find our way off the mountain, circle all the way back around the mountain, go back up the top, and we go to a different checkpoint. Ron told us, he's like, you can get to this checkpoint. You'll be there in time. Nobody should be up there. Oh, yeah. This is it. And this Whoa. is the checkpoint that's oh at the God. top of the climb. We found it. Oh. <laughs> I didn't think it would ever happen. All right. It's at the peak of the mountain. Mile 32. Have no fear. NPR is here. <laughs> It's just a small gravel parking lot. It's like a lookout point. There's about six volunteers there. Yeah, we're with the Jeep Posse Search and Rescue. They all had walkie-talkies. They were getting updates from other checkpoints on the course. And they told us that the first beast we were going to see was a horse. Yeah, they're just about to come roaring through here, so... Because that's what had always happened before. Horses always come up the mountain first. And then you... Is it? Grab me, you're like, you should come look at this view. I mean, you're going to see. Go look. (laughs) Oh, my God. Isn't it, like, the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? That's incredible. It's just this huge green valley that runs all the way to these, like, beautiful red cliffs. This is crazy. Like, they come up there? These horses and humans climb up this, essentially, like, a sheer face of a mountain. I can't believe they come up this way. Oh, yeah, I guess they're going to be a little further. You'll see them 
trucking your way up here and you'll hear them coming. It's like very steep. I just have no idea where the trail is. I mean, so we kind of just were sitting around waiting for like a sign. When all of a sudden one of the volunteers just shouted out. Runner coming. Runner coming? Yeah. Runner. Runner before a horse? Runner in the lead. <laughs> they do it. Out of nowhere, coming from this tiny little trail into this parking lot. Got it. Nick just appears. And he looked like he looked good. He just kind of seemed chill. I'll keep running. I'll run with Nick for a second. And so I caught up alongside of him. I'll try to keep pace with you for a minute. All right. Hey, you're out, you're out ahead. Yeah, that's a good sign, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I I'm feeling pretty good about that. How do you feel so far in general? Not too bad. I mean, that was the toughest part. I uh, had to hike quite a bit of that climb. Oh, really? Just yeah. straight up hiking? Yeah, it's like 1,500 feet of climbing and I don't know, like a mile, mile and a half. Oh. So it's a steep, steep climb. Yeah. But yeah, now it's all pretty much downhill from here, so that should be good. How are you doing for pace? I'm not, I'm happy with where I'm at. I'm just running. Hard but comfortable. Okay. I don't know where that compares to the record or anything. Not too, too worried about it yet. Yeah. We ran together for four minutes. I'll leave you to it. Awesome. I'll Good luck. Later. Thanks. Oh my God. He's been doing that. 32 miles. That's insane. What happened? Yeah, I ran with him for a little bit. I'm so dead. Not a horse? No horse yet. Huh. There still wasn't a horse. 20 minutes go by, and then all of a sudden we hear another runner. Another runner coming. Then a third runner. Hey, what's going on, man? Hey, nice to see you. Not a single horse still. They're coming. <laughs> so then finally, there's a horse. In fact, there's two horses. There's these two women riders who kind of emerge out of the trail. But there's no Troy. Yeah, there's no sign of Troy. And this is how I remember it. Like, we'd heard something had happened. Somewhere back down the trail, his horse stumbled and fell. That a rider had gone down. Did I hear a name? But no one knew who. And then we ended up finding out that, in fact, we caught a rock and went down. And Troy, and, uh, around mile 26 or so, he and his horse caught a rock. Toe catcher, as he called it. He and the horse both fell, yeah. Which sort of, you know, to a large extent, ended my day. And they were okay. And, but the idea of winning was, was completely gone. But there were these riders, Susie and MJ, who we'd also heard actually, I think, were like top riders. Who have won lots of races. And so... They had a pretty good shot of winning, too. And we're like, okay, well, we'll follow, we'll follow them. So we drove a mile down the road to vet check two. We're trying to figure out based on the pace when the runners... We knew Nick was ahead, but the question was, was he ahead enough in order to win the race? Like, these horses could still finish after him, but still beat him. 
So we walk into this vet check. It's in this little wooded area. And you go and you start talking to people. And then when we were coming in, I asked Hi there. one of going? the volunteers. We're doing good. How are you doing? Not bad. Did the uh, front runner come through? If Nick had come oh, through yeah. and he was just like, yeah, oh, yeah. No, he he is really moving. Because we want to make sure we don't miss him at the finish line. Do you know what he, uh, you know when he might get in, you think? We look at a map and we realize that Nick is running a seven-minute mile. So if you're trying to get there to catch him, you're not going to have a lot of time. We decided that I'd stay behind and talk to the horse people, and you'd go ahead and try to get to the finish line. Okay, but all right, I'll be in touch. So I drove very fast down the mountain trying to catch Nick. Who was just getting to the bottom of the mountain. I'm winding down the trail. It's steep. It's rocky. Making sure I'm picking up my feet, not going to catch a toe on a rock or anything like that. Do whatever it takes to keep my body upright. For the whole first part of this race, Nick's mindset is like, only live in this moment. Don't let yourself think about the end. Don't let yourself have a lot of feeling or emotion. But then here at the end, after 40 miles... I... I... I almost start to let uh, a panic take over me. For the first time in the whole race, all the emotions that he's been repressing and pushing down. That I let it all come in on me. You let that hit you and you let that excitement hit you and you let that adrenaline and, you know, fear and, you know, everything else, kind of a huge mix of emotions, uh, all rush in and you let yourself experience like the fullness of every single emotion all at once and you hit that height. I I was I just started running basically as hard as I could, faster and faster, and like I almost build this momentum of like nothing can stop me from getting to that finish line. Like I I hit that last half mile where I can see the finish banner, I can see the finish line. Uh, like tears started welling up as I'm running in and like the, the emotions just completely overcome me as I cross the finish line. So I got back down to like the base camp, got out of the car and started making my way over to the finish line. And then I just saw him standing there. How'd it go? Good. He was surrounded by a bunch of people. Did you do it? Yeah. Catch 614. 614. Hey! 614. <laughs> I go, he's not in yet. I don't have to go up there. Yeah, there you go. 614. Shit. Way to go, man. Yeah. Oh, I just can't believe. You're my favorite runner. I ever, I ever tell you that? So That's awesome. But really, what everybody wanted to know... So did Nick beat the horse? Was did Nick win-win? Like, for the first time in the history of this race, did a human beat the horse? And so what they do is they, they have this banquet later where they actually give out the awards and announce everybody's time. They get a nice, big, fat uh, winner's buckle. The, the winner gets a really cool belt buckle. So the way it works is that Ron announces the winners by category. So in third place... We starting with the top three runners. Pete Mortimer! He announces third place and then second place, and then he gets to... All right, here we go. Here's the big one. Really big, really big. Nick. Really big show here. Nick Corey... Uh, Nick Corey won this course, won the race in time of 6:14. He won. He won the course outright by beating the horse by over an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah. 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 Okay, so. 
Nick walks up. Ron hands him this sterling silver belt buckle. 614. With the Man Against Horse logo on it. Unbelievable. It's never been done before where a runner has actually beat the horse uh, with with the whole times. Yeah. In the story of Ancient Man, you this would be the moment where you get to eat your yeah, you bone ca- marrow. You catch up to the gazelle and you bash it over the head bash and its break open its brains bone. in while it's like just slowly breathing on the ground in front of you. <laughs> He's like, that's yeah. not my bag. That's your guys' thing. Yeah, I, I, I guess it's maybe like the the old adage comes to mind. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. It's I, I want it to be something like that. I I guess I always found it fascinating how it seems so obvious that a race is about the end. Right. But everybody we talked to was like, it's not about the end. And maybe they were just sort of like, maybe that's like the good sportsman thing to say. Maybe that's kind of like how you get yourself through it. But I guess that's sort of to the point is like the only way you can run a race like this, the only way you can really run 50 miles is to think about it mile by mile instead of imagining that the end is the goal. Right. You have to go just step by step. You have to keep steady. It's like we're not just evolved to get to the end. We evolved to endure the whole process. If you run, uh, this kind of makes sense. Daniel Lieberman, the guy who, in a way, kind of set us off on this whole journey. I mean, there's a point when, you know, running is not easy. Um, Everybody, when you start a run, all of us, um, even the world's best runners, the first mile or so are never easy. But there's a point in every run when when things get better and you kind of realize or feel your body's really good at this. And um, and I think we were, we kind of helped people understand um, how and why that is and also help people understand why it is that so many of us uh, enjoy running and why, you know, millions of people run marathons and, and why, you know, when I walk out the door and go to the river here, I see thousands of people running along the Charles River. Um, we wouldn't be uh, who we are today if it weren't for running. It's it's part of who we are. Right. Mm-hmm. So did you guys go to Man Against Horse? We did. Oh, we yeah, went. We did. Yeah. It was crazy. <laughs> it was crazy. Because the guy, I mean, I don't know if you've heard this year, but the guy who won, won by a lot. Yeah. Yeah, he beat the he beat the horses. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just love that he's like, yeah. Because to Lieberman... To Lieberman, that's not a surprise. Yeah, it's like, this is who we are and what we've been doing. This is what we've been doing since two million years ago out on the Serengeti. Like, Nick did what we were born to do. Yeah, so... So I don't buy into that scenario. Oh. Oh, wow. Wow. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I'm just kidding. I mean, this is is no surprise to Dan. He knows about it. We've argued about it, right? Again, this is Daniel Lieberman's collaborator, Dennis Bramble. So I don't think it's plausible, really, that the earliest stages of running and the the things that promoted running um, 
could be persistence hunting, which is what that strategy is, where you run something in the heat and it overheats ultimately, and uh, and you walk up and hit it over the head with a rock. We should say that this is a way that some people in the world still hunt. It's a strategy that can work, but Bramble doesn't think it's the, it's the first strategy we had for getting meat. It's a really demanding thing, and it uh, takes hours, and it takes tracking ability usually. Um, I think that's something that, that came later after running was pretty well established. Hmm. To me, uh, it makes a lot more sense th- that it began in something which has been called aggressive scavenging, hmm. taking advantage of real predators and trying to rip off the meat before other things start moving in and haul it off. Bramble's like, you get there and there's a chance to eat some of it. And the thing is, you're you're competing against all sorts of different, like, scavengers. You're competing against the vultures, hyenas. Hyenas, Leopards. Leopards. Even, like, the animal that killed the animal. Yeah, so in Bramble's theory, you need to run to be able to get there before basically all the other animals in the savanna pick it clean. Right. They have to get there fast because the faster you get there, the more of the carcasses left. I see. Yeah. I will say that your theory is far less uh, noble and exciting. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, no. So, so of chasing that, down. No. So no. Perseverance, right. strength, commitment. Yours is like, hey, we figured out vultures are over there. Let's just go see what we can pick off this dead animal that somebody, something else, like spent all the time killing. And we will, and we will be as badass as we can be when we get over there to scare <laughs> off those other guys. No, it's it's a totally. Non-glorious. It makes us into <laughs> vultures. It makes us. It makes it, our entire species into it, it just make, vultures. It, it makes us into opportunists. Yeah, I feel like maybe I buy into your. <laughs> I know it is pretty compelling. I have to say, well, like, that no, makes sense. It, it's not sexy. <laughs> yeah. So then it's like, it's not sexy, right? Like it's like the question is, are we lions? Or are we vultures? That's essentially what it is. Are we lions or are we vultures? But I guess the beautiful thing about it is, like, either way, no matter what. We got there because of our butts. (laughs) Is that where you were going? Yeah. (laughs) No matter what, it's all about the butt. Reporters Heather Radke and Matt Kielty. I'm Chad Abumrad. Thanks for listening. Hey, this is uh, producer Matt Kilty running near my mom's house in Arizona. And uh, just very quickly, uh, this episode was produced by me with Rachel Cusick and Simon Adler. Uh, we had original awesome music, sound design and mixing from Jeremy Bloom. This episode was fact-checked by Dory Shevlin. Special thanks to Tammy Ganyan, Abby Swift, and everybody at uh, Man Against Horse. And also, really quickly wanted to say, uh, both Dennis and Daniel made a point of the fact that a lot of their early theories about humans and endurance running were informed by one of Dennis's students, the guy who wrote that paper. Uh, his name is Dave Carrier. And uh, coincidentally, Dave's brother is a man named Scott Carrier, who 
if you listen to public radio, you might recognize the name. Ben has had great work on This American Life. Also, a wonderful podcast called Home of the Brave. Anyways, back in 1998, Scott did this sort of like seminal story about his brother's work, trying to, ch- trying to chase down an antelope and uh, a whole lot of things. Anyways, it just felt important to acknowledge both of them. And yeah, that's about it. This is terrible. This is Grace Wright calling from Inglewood, Colorado. Radio Lab is created by Jad Abumrad with Robert Krolwich and produced by Soren Wheeler. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Susie Lichtenberg is our executive producer. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, David Gebel, Bethany Habti, Tracy Hunt, Matt Kilty, Annie McEwen, Latif Nasser, Sarah Kari, Ariane Wack. Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Shima Olili, W. Harry Fortuna, Sarah Sandbach, Melissa O'Donnell, Marion Reno, and Russell Gregg. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast.